Have you ever tried to feed a child that doesn't want to be fed before? Have you ever, as a parent or maybe a babysitter, have you ever tried to feed a small child? If, if you haven't had the misfortune of having to do this, this is what I'll, let me give you an image, okay? Imagine a globe with a spoon-sized hole in it. Now spin the globe and then put it on a yo-yo and now try and put a spoon in that little spoon size. So that's what it's like trying to, fight, trying to feed a child that doesn't want to... Have you ever tried to um, comfort a child that doesn't want to be comforted? Right? It's like trying to hug a two-by-four. child just gets stiff and screams... And you're like, it's okay. And you're trying to hug this little, it's like a two by four that can slap you in the face softly. <laughs> it's what it's like, right? And uh, it's not good. It's okay, little plank. Shh. <laughs> Today's text is Mark chapter six. And this is a passage where Jesus is rejected by his own. He's rejected in his own hometown. You know, I make those jokes about trying to comfort the little one that's stiff as a board. But parents know that that can actually be quite an emotional thing after weeks and weeks of tireless nights and discomfort to feel like you have moments as a parent where you feel like you're being rejected by this little one. Mark chapter 6, Jesus is totally rejected. And he's rejected in his hometown. He came to save us in grace from sin and death. But we swatted his grace away like a small infant that didn't want to be fed and didn't know it needed to be fed. And we swatted him away like one who was coming into our restless discomfort to bring us rest and comfort. But we didn't know because we wanted to, you know, be our own source of comfort. And we've swatted the grace of God away. And this is what Jesus experienced in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And Jesus went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and and Hoses, and and, and Judas, and and Simon? And are these not not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And Jesus could do no mighty works there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and he began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money, but to wear the sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who are sick and healed them. This is God's word. Now Jesus causes all this controversy in his hometown. He's rejected in his hometown. Not because of his teaching. They're astonished by his teaching. Not because of his miracles. They're amazed by his miracles. 
They're blown away by his teaching and his miracles. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear. The demons are running for the hills. Just around the corner, you know, before, after this text, Jesus is about to do another miracle. There's going to be an all-you-can-eat bread situation, which everybody's really happy about. You know, they, 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 it, wasn't, it wasn't his teaching and his, and his miracle working that they were offended at. It was his claim. He was, he was claiming that he was the son of God. He was claiming that he could forgive sin. And of course, only God can do that. And they, they were offended at him. There's no parade for Jesus. It's not like, you know, you go to Brantford or you go to these other, uh, I think it's, yeah, Brantford, home of Wayne Gretzky. Well, am I Canadian or what? I can't believe I had to think about that twice. <laughs> it tells you how much hockey I watch. But it wasn't like that. Welcome to Bethlehem, home of the healer. Why not? They weren't, there's no parades and no signs. It's just totally rejected him. They liked what he did. They liked what he said. But they didn't like everything that he said. They rejected who he said he was. There's this woman named Barbara Boyd. She was a teacher on one of those campus ministries. And she was very influential in the life of this uh, preacher, author, apologist named Tim Keller. And Barbara Boyd was doing a teaching Tim was sitting in once. And she was explaining Christ and his lordship and how that really offends us. Because the, the moment you say the phrase, Jesus is Lord, you've made a monstrous political statement, haven't you? Because now you're talking about a lordship and a kingdom and a king, and it, but it isn't us. So immediately you're, you're dealing with uh, a potential tremendous offense. And so Barbara Boyd said this. She said, my name is Barbara Boyd. You can't say to me, come in, Barbara, stay out, Boyd. That doesn't work. And you can't say, come in, Savior, stay out, Lord. And you can't say, come in, gracious healer, and stay out, gracious king. But you see, Jesus was demanding that all those who were listening to him received him as such. Received him in this way. And it was causing tremendous offense. And so, one of the strong themes in Mark's gospel, he leads us to understand that unless you can see how Jesus was rejected, you're not going to understand Jesus. Unless you can understand that Jesus was, was alienated, you're not going to understand Jesus. And the reason why Mark writes it this way is Mark wrote this book from Rome. And no self-respecting Roman would follow somebody, believe in somebody, who is rejected by their own people. It's totally embarrassing. The Romans were obsessed with totalitarian power. They appreciated, uh, you know, authority and power. And you would subdue your enemies by your power. And, and Jesus was the antithesis of that. Jesus is rejected in his, home, in his own hometown. So Mark is writing this down to an audience who are like, you know, this is not a king like the kind of king that you're thinking. You know, he's say, this king is saying things like, I can forgive sins. And so all of a sudden, if Christ is Lord, that means Caesar is not Lord. Right? Again, that's what I mean when I say political. Right? The moment Jesus opened his mouth, it was immediately political. Herod was like, okay, we have a problem here. Because P.S., I'm the king. And Jesus is like, you're not. So what happens is Mark, is Mark is letting the Romans know, here is this king who has come. But he's not like any other king. He's not come to subdue you with his power. He's come to lay down his power. We know the end of the story. He doesn't come to shed blood. He sheds his own blood. So this is unlike any other authority and power that the world has ever known. And yet, even though this is really embarrassing for a Roman, thousands of Romans in the first century converted and believed in Jesus Christ and worshipped him. And why did they do that? How did this, how did this happen? 
Well, because after hundreds of eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Christ and they went through Rome, the Romans discovered what all Christians end up discovering. And what they discovered is there's none like Jesus. There's a saying in ancient Rome, Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. Well, how did Rome get peace? By shedding blood. A lot of blood. And so Mark is writing to this group of people who ended up believing in the resurrected Christ because he came and he brought true peace, but he didn't do it by shedding anybody else's blood. Of course, he did it by shedding his own blood in this radical grace. So when Jesus did his miracles, he didn't do them on anybody else's authority. He didn't cry out, oh God of heaven, help me heal this woman. He just did it on his own authority. Jesus never cried out to the God of heaven. He just acted because he was the God of heaven. Jesus healed the sick, he cast out demons, he shushed hurricanes, he raised the dead with a whisper. He did it all in untamable power. And then he reached out to outcasts and sinners and rejects with untamable grace. And they marveled at the Jesus of untamable power. And they were astonished at the Jesus of untamable grace. But what neither the self-righteous nor the self-sufficient could handle was an untamable king. And that's why his hometown can't stomach him. That's why you notice right away, I'll borrow the, borrow the words of the great writer, you know, atheist philosopher turned Christian, C.S. Lewis. He said it this way. He said, Jesus Christ is a good king, but he's not tame, but he's good. And what you discover is in verse 3, they try to reduce this untamable king. They try and shrink him down and make him small. And how do they do it? They reduce him to be a man. Well, he couldn't have been. He's not divine. He's just, Jesus Christ is just in, is kind of an ancient hipster through history. He lived on time. Uh, did a lot of nice things. Like redu- We try and reduce him. This is not new. They were reducing him while he was still alive. Uh, think about how many people who talk about a historical Jesus today that reduce him to simply being a man. He was still walking the earth doing miracles when they were trying to reduce him to be. Just think about... Think about the degree of commitment you have to have to your own con- conscious, you know, cognitive consonants to be like, I have to, I have to live with such harmony in how I think and see the world. This is such a conflict in my understanding of reality that even though I'm looking at him, I have to deny it. Just think about how deep that goes for a moment. They say in verse 3, we know his brothers, we know his sisters. Come on, we went to high school together. Jesus, you can't be divine. Now that I think about it, you never missed a shot. That's weird. No, I'm just kidding. But... <laughs> Maybe that was a sign. I remember at recess, you know, we played Egyptians and Israelites, and you just, you know, I should have caught on. No, that's not what's happening. This isn't just mere familiarity. They're literally, they're having a problem with his divinity. Now, the scriptures teach us that Jesus has two natures in one substance, right? And, and that he is fully divine and he is perfectly human. When I say perfectly human, I mean Jesus is the picture of what all of us are going to be in the resurrection, Right? Without sin. He's perfectly human, perfectly divine. Both of these things are true. Back in history, there was the Athanasius Creed. Some of you, maybe theologians here might know this. Where, where Athanasius was fighting for this. That no, he was perfectly human and perfectly divine. He called it the hypostatic union. You know, that's one of the things in theological history. For the kids in here who don't care about what I just said, I'll explain it to you the way that I did last week. Imagine, after the service today, I'm so hungry. Because after church, hunger is real. I just back up without looking and I smash into your family's car. And I get out of the car and there you are and you say to me, Pastor Paul, I'm so hungry too because the preacher went long. It's okay. I forgive you. Just go. I want to go home and eat too. 
Guess what? It's not okay. And the reason it's not okay is because it's not your car. So you don't get to, you don't get to forgive me because my sin wasn't against you. That is why Jesus had to be perfectly divine and perfectly human. He had to be human because sin came into the earth through the prideful, treasonous act in the garden. He had to be human. But he had to be divine because all humans are born sinful. Even modern, some modern conversations around the virgin birth are still, are still thought of in a weird way. Well, people will say, well, it had to be a virgin because, you know, if Adam had, or sorry, because if Joseph had been involved, then, you know, sin would have, what? Like Mary was sinless? And then that takes you down a whole other track of heresy. No, that is not why Joseph was not involved. It wasn't like, well, if Joseph is involved, he's gonna, there's going to be sin. So it just has to be this sinless virgin. No. The virgin birth is, 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 is to signify that there has to be divinity. Because who is sinless? Nobody. Who can save us? Nobody. Who can forgive us? We're the ones that got ourselves into this dilemma. This is why death exists. I don't, know if, I don't know if you know the statistics on death, but they're staggering. It's one in one. Okay, So we needed a savior, and he had to be human, and he had to be divine. And the only one who could forgive us was the one that we sinned against. And so that's why Christ came the way that he did. And of course, everything I'm saying right now was completely offensive to the self-righteous, and it was completely offensive to the self-sufficient. Because they both ran away from the grace of God in two completely different days and they ended up rejecting him. We have a long history of people who opposed the ways of God and rejected God. When God reached out in saving grace, the people rejected the prophets of God. And now here in this text, they're rejecting Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every prophetic word and he's God's final word. If you come up with another word past Jesus, that's a little thing we call heresy. He's the fulfillment of every prior word, and he's the fulfillment, I'm sorry, and he's God's final word. And so he comes in the flesh, and they reject him, just like they rejected everybody else. And today, of course, we can be rejected because we relate to Jesus, the Son of God, as the Son of God. And so historically speaking, people have always opposed those who worship Jesus as the Son of God. Because not only do we worship Jesus as the Son of God, but we live with a conviction about the wise guidance of the Word of God. And so we bend our knee to the Lord of grace, and that's offensive. It can be offensive. And so the idea that there's this divine standard that supersedes our subjective standards and a divine ethic that supersedes our malleable ethics and a divine truth that supersedes personal truth, it's always been controversial. In the first century, Christians risked physical death for not falling into the culture ideologically. And today, you'll risk social death or vocational death if you don't fall into the culture ideologically. These are things that have just always been because Jesus Christ is this good king, but he's not tame in the sense that, that the, rea- the reality of what he signifies demands that we, we conform to him and that he doesn't conform to us. And so... In verse 4, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor, except for in his own hometown. And again, as I said before, this isn't just a situation of familiarity. They are rejecting Jesus. You see, because you and I have been saved by grace, the way that we can relate to the culture that rejects Jesus is with love and dignity, without abandoning our conviction. 
we can maintain our conviction that not only Christ is Lord, but the life in which we live and how that, how the divine ethic and the wise guidance of God's word shapes and reshapes our ethic. But then we can love our neighbor and treat them with dignity, regardless of their worldview, regardless of their position, on the basis of Christ being our Lord. But here in verse 4, Jesus says, you know what, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own, in his own hometown. And this is, of course, because they, they wanted harmony between what they believed and how they lived. And Jesus threatened that harmony. Because the, 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 the self-righteous, their paradigm was, you live a good moral life, and God accepts you on the basis of your, of your morals. You keep the law. And Jesus comes along and threatens that because he threatens all their rule, salvation by rule-keeping. He threatens it. And so, because of that, the self-righteous, they, believe, they want to believe and behave like they can earn their way to God. And Jesus comes along and says, you cannot believe, I'm sorry, you cannot behave your way into the grace of God, and so it's threatening them. And then in the other ditch, apart from the self-righteous, are the self-sufficient. And the self-sufficient want to believe and behave like they have no use for the grace of God. There is no God. And so they both end up running away from grace in these two completely opposite ways, but yet the same, the same result. And so then Jesus comes to offering this grace, but it's offensive to the self-righteous and it's offensive to the self-sufficient because neither of them seem to think that they need it. Neither of them seem to think that they need him. And so it's, this is going to sound counterintuitive, but before the message of God's grace actually liberates you, it does offend you. Because God coming to you in Jesus Christ and saying, I am offering you grace apart from your works. I am offering you salvation apart from your works. Grace infers you're not okay. I mean, that's what it infers. God coming to you with grace and extending grace is immediately inferring that you're not okay. We all have to face the sobering reality that life ends in death, which means pragmatically, just, just, just being rational here, Life doesn't end up okay. So if life doesn't end up okay and God is coming up to, to me and he is offering grace, which inherently tells me I'm not okay, there is nothing worse for the human psyche than being told we're not okay. There's nothing more offensive than the idea that we're not okay. You could, the, the most offensive thing you could say to anybody on the street would kind of sound like you're not okay. And so when we hear this gospel... It offends us before it liberates us. It offends our blind eyes before it liberates and actually opens our eyes. Because we're under the impression that we're okay. And that's why, in his own hometown, they're like, you know, there's the door, Jesus. Don't hit, let it hit you on the way out. They're, they're, they're rejecting him. And so God comes through Jesus Christ to do what we cannot do for ourselves, to reunite, re- reunite us to God, so that in the end everything can be okay. And if you're new to the scriptures, you're exploring faith this morning, you're new to Christian faith, this state of being okay is what the Bible calls justified. You are justified by Christ. You are made before the eyes of God okay. Not something you can do through your works, only something that Christ can do. And so it says in verse 5, he couldn't do a mighty work. He can only heal a few. And it's not because Jesus is incapable of healing. It's because they had closed their hearts to receiving. It's not because they had this underdeveloped white belt faith and they needed to have miracle-sized black belt faith 
so that Jesus can only do miracles when you've got black belt faith in the room. No. It's because they looked at Jesus and they said in their hearts, you are not who you claimed to be. You're not who you claim to be. I can't explain you. I don't understand you. But most importantly, I don't trust you. And Jesus marvels. He's like, wow. Your need to be self-sufficient, your, to not need me, astounds me. Your need to be so self-righteous that you think on the basis of your behavior and your religious box checking, you're okay with God? Wow. He marvels at it. But I want you to notice his response. Because I'll tell you what my response would have been. <laughs> right? Like, and I think I'm not alone in here. Well, some of you, actually, a lot of you are probably way more sanctified than me, and you wouldn't do that. But a lot of you aren't, and you would have done it too. Okay? Well, how do you respond to rejection? I shrivel back from rejection. If somebody rejects you, if somebody hurts you, what do you do? Do you move closer to that person to embrace that person? I don't. Like, my, my initial response is to recoil. And then, you know, maybe if the Lord does a work in me over a period of time, which is embarrassingly long, then I can reach back out. But after rejection, I'm like, if I had all the power of the universe at my fingertips, and they look me right in the eye, and they're like, you're not who you say you are, I'd be like, watch me. <laughs> watch me show you. Right? Which is why I'm very much in need of God's grace. But what he... What he does, what Jesus does is interesting. What does he do? He sends out the 12. What is that? Here we see the, the, the followers of Christ doing the same miracles of Christ, further authenticating the claims of Christ. Look at the lengths of the undeserved saving grace Jesus goes to. They reject him. And is isn't go, that's it, I'm leaving. He's like, okay, I'm sending, all, I'm sending all you guys out. You guys are going to do all the same miracles that I did. You're going to cast out demons like I did. You're going to heal the sick like I did. Like, we're going we're gonna to give this one more pass. Can you believe this grace? Can you believe this patience? There's not a person in here in this room that would extend this kind of grace and patience after being utterly rejected. It is astounding. He, Jesus doesn't avoid it. He moves into it. In verses 7 through 13, you find Jesus sending out the 12. And, here, and, and, and it's, it's amazing. He gives them authority and power. And to ensure that they don't forget the source of their authority and power, right? notice how he sends them. He doesn't just go, go, I give you authority and power over demons and go, go. No, no, no. Because these guys, and I'm going to pick on Peter for a moment because I relate to him the most. Because he's constantly making mistakes and they're all through the Bible for us to read. So I relate to that poor guy. They, no, no, that power, you, you don't give authority and power over demons to people with ego problems. Like that, you just give authority and power to a narcissist and tell me how that works out. Right? So how does Jesus send them out? What is the tone? What is the attitude? And we should pay attention to this, church, because the scandalous grace we see here is what we rest in, enjoy, and it's the tone in which we leave this place and go out of into the city to minister, right? So watch what he does. 
He gives them authority and power, but to ensure they don't forget the source of authority and power or abuse their authority and power, Jesus gives them a humble posture to minister that authority and power. Don't take any food. Don't take any money. Don't take any clothes. The sandals are good. What you're wearing is fine. You're good. Go. That is a posture of utter dependency. And dependency will crucify your self-sufficiency. So he sends them out in a posture of utter dependency. Where are we going to sleep? What are we going to do? Where are we going to eat? How are we going to... Oh God, please help us. Exactly. That's, what, that's the tone of the disciple going out. And then he says, stay with whoever will give you a bed. Right? Minister in a pot. That, that is humility. Not like, they couldn't go out and become celebrity pastors. It was impossible. They couldn't roll high. Jesus was like, nope. You just live with dependency and humility and that will crucify your vanity. It will crucify it. It's incredible. Stay with whoever will leave you, give you a bed and stay with them as long as possible. I was watching uh, David Letterman interviewing uh, Malala Yousafzai. I believe that's how you pronounce her name. Forgive me if I didn't pronounce that properly. But she, a uh, young woman who is act, uh, just uh, a strong activist for um, women's education around the world. Right? She's passionate about this. And in her, um, where she lives, it's very much like the culture here where Jesus says, go and stay as long as you can. And uh, so David Letterman asked her about this. So in your culture, you can just stay at people's houses. And she said, yeah. And he said, so I could just go and stay with your family and stay as long as possible and they'd be fine with it. And she goes, yes. I mean, they may not say anything to you, but yeah, you can. You could, yes. And so Jesus is saying, you're going you're gonna to depend on this kind of hospitality. Um, and, and you're going to be in this attitude of humility and, and dependency. And then in verse 11, he says... And if they don't receive you, shake the dust off your feet. Well, what's going on here? Is this an ancient version of just giving the city a crude hand gesture? Is that what Jesus is doing? Well, and if they don't reject you, just be like, I can give you all kinds of great Italian. If I catch you, I'll kill you. Okay? Is that what Jesus is doing? Is that the tone? Because I'm gonna, I just can tell you, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, if I could apologize for the Christians that have kind of taken this tone like that's supposed to be the tone, like you don't um, receive or understand the goodness of the gospel, you still have questions about it, or, or you flat out just disagree with them to their face and, and, they kind of, and you, you kind of feel this pride, arrogance, even hatred where they're kind of like they just shake the dust off. That's not the tone. And it's important that we understand this because Jesus is not giving a green light to relate to unbelievers with pride, arrogance, and superiority because the ancient haters are going to hate. Hate, hate. Okay, that's not what's happening here. In the ancient world, when Jews returned to Israel, they would shake the dust off their shoes and their clothing before entering in as a sign to not defile the land. When prophets were, were rejected, they would shake the dust off as a, as a warning sign before they left the land of those that had rejected them. But the, the, there's, an intended, there's an intended symbolism here. And in the Old Testament, over and over and over, if you find contexts where the dust was being shaken off, it was a way of saying, this land is where the people of God are. But the disciples weren't going outside Israel. Where's Jesus sending them? 
He's not sending them to Greece. Where is he sending them? He's sending them all around Israel. So this sign of shaking off the feet, that's what they used to do when they were like, and now I've come to the border of Israel, and now I shake off the dust of the feet because this is where the people of God are. It was like this delineation in the Old Testament. But Jesus is sending them inside Israel to minister inside Israel. And he's saying, shake the dust off. What does this mean? Well, it's a pretty provocative message because Jesus is saying, the people of God are not simply those who live in this land. The people of God are all those who are in Christ. This is another gracious warning to turn, to repent. So that when, when if you're a self-righteous person in Israel and you reject the apostles saying that Christ is Lord, and then they shake the dust off in front of you? They shake the dust off in front of you and they leave? First of all, it would offend you because you would be like, I'm Israel. But it was a gracious warning. It was a gracious warning and opportunity for them to be drawn in to be like, I need to be in Christ. Salvation is under one name alone under heaven by which men are saved. And so this warning, it showcases the patience and the long-suffering and the willingness of God to forgive. Because since Genesis, God has always held back judgment. He has always held out grace with scandalous levels of unfathomable, unparalleled patience. And so by giving this instruction to dust off their feet as a sign of those who reject him again, Jesus is holding back judgment. Jesus is holding out grace with scandalous, unfathomable, unparalleled patience again. The disciples aren't just following rules, they're following a king. You and I aren't just following rules, we're following a king. And when Jesus looked at Jerusalem before his crucifixion, he didn't spit at it, he wept for it. This is the tone. This is the heart. He wasn't calling them and he isn't calling us. When we are rejected to shake the dust off with pride in our hearts and self-righteousness in our eyes, but with grace in our hearts and love in our eyes, May we minister in this city with grace in our hearts and love in our eyes because that is how he's calling us to minister. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, as I close. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation and the new has come. The old is gone. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling to the world himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And we, therefore, are the ambassadors. As, through, as though God were making his appeal through us, and we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Church, may you minister with the same posture that he gave his disciples. Not self-sufficiency, not self-righteousness, but dependency. Not with an attitude of pride and vanity, but love and humility. And be encouraged Because you've not been sent out to share the gospel by the power of your will, but by the power of his spirit. And the gospel is not powerful because of your eloquence. It's powerful because of his grace. And here we are, the children of God, who sit and rest in this scandalous grace. Think of the patience that God went through with you. Think of the scandalous levels of patience he went with you. So that you could sit here this morning and say, I believe in the resurrection. It's incredible. And may you marvel in your salvation. May you rest in his grace. That is finished in Christ. 
There's nothing left for you to do. There's nothing for you to add. You're in him. And it's from that rest we go with great boldness and we give a defense for the hope that we enjoy. Amen? Let's pray.